Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I'm glad to see you all. Place looks kind of packed out this morning. Good to see you all. Uh, we are doing, uh, we're continuing in our Roman series. Uh, I want to point out to you that today is the uh, second Sunday in Advent, and that means that we lit our second candle today. And uh, we, we will also be lighting the fifth candle, the Christ candle, at our Christmas Eve service. I'm not sure if that was mentioned, but December 24th, 5 p.m. right here. Uh, I think it's going to be a beautiful service. Uh, there's going to be uh, music. There's going to be candles. There's going to be something for the kids. There's going to be a sermon, hopefully for, I think, about 75% adult, 25% kid-friendly kind of thing. And uh, it's going to be about an hour and five minutes long, so you can go out and have dinner with your family or whatever it is you had planned. So please plan on joining us for that, December 24th, 5 p.m. Got it? Great. All right. Uh, The title of today's sermon is Gravity. And um, I have found this metaphor and thinking about gravity and Uh, in terms of this passage, really, really helpful for me. And so I'm going to try to weave this concept uh, into the passage. And this is sort of the idea I want you to walk away with as you try to apply the truths in your own life. I begin by talking about this idea of freedom. Now, uh, I hear all the time people say things like, I can do that. It's a free country. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers, two weeks ago, and he used the phrase. He said, you can do that. It's a free country. Um, What does freedom mean? What does it mean that you are free? I think the easy definition is to be free is to do whatever you want to do. Sounds about right, doesn't it? You're free because you can do whatever you want to do. Here's what the passage says. The passage says the, the, the problem isn't freedom. The problem is you. You don't know what you want to do. And you don't know how to do the thing that you think you want to do. And the thing you think you want to do because you think that'll make you happy, you're not sure if that'll make you happy. Because lots of other times, that thing that you did, knowing, believing, thinking that's going to make you happy, didn't make you happy. Also, there's conflicts with happiness. You want to do this, and you think that'll make you happy. That's what you want to do. But here's somebody else that you love, and they don't want you to do that. But you want them to be happy. You also want to be happy. What are you supposed to do? Or maybe you do something that you want to do, but that would hurt the person that you love. What are you supposed to do? So there's conflict when it comes to freedom. We can't just look at it in this isolated way and say freedom is me doing whatever I want to do. Paul says in this passage that we have fractured identities. That we're conflicted about who we are and who we're not and what we want and don't want. What we think, what we don't know, what we're confused about. In most matters, we're cloudy. We just aren't sure What's going on? And so to talk about freedom is a complex issue. 
In this passage, Paul says, you know, freedom requires a lot of wisdom because there's a lot of pieces and nobody is isolated all by themselves. And for all of us to be truly free, we need a wise and just being an entity, a God that's orchestrating so that everybody can be happy. So there's synergy and there's coordination and orchestration. Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to have all of that in your head and do whatever you want to do so that you can be happy? And the answer, of course, is no. And he says that we are sold into bondage, that we are not free. We are, in fact, slaves. And freedom is very rare and hard to come by. And he asks this ultimate question. After considering the absence of freedom in our lives, he says, Paul says, Who will set me free from the body of this death? So that's sort of the problem in the text this morning. And I think we're beginning to see already that this is a problem in our life. Now here's for me where the idea of gravity comes in. Paul uses the word law. In this passage, verses 14 to 25, he uses the word law nine times. It's a lot of laws. And in this chapter, chapter 7, which we conclude today, he uses the word law 23 times. That's a lot of, the, a lot of usage of the word law. And what's the primary law that he's talking about? Well, he names it as the law of sin and death. But the way I understand it, it's the law of gravity in this passage. And what that means is this. Here's what you think you want to do, so you're pulled to it. But then there's that other thing you may still want to do, and you're pulled to that. Here's the thing that you don't want to do. You hate it, but you're still pulled to that. And here's the thing that you want to do with your mind, but you're pulled to that. And then here's the thing that your body wants to do, so you're pulled to that. And you're constantly pulled in all directions by different gravitational forces. And here you are, a tiny little celestial body, just being bullied around by all these different gravitational forces. Uh, uh, orientations. So it's the law of gravity at work. And the principle is this. Gravity exists. You can't escape it. You are going to be pulled by something. You just are. What will you be pulled by? And that's Paul's question. Who will set me free from the body, that's the celestial body of this death. In this body, Paul's experiencing as a body of death because he's constantly pulled in every which direction. So we're going to ask two questions. First, what is the law? And second, who will set me free? FYI, little side note here. I have the passage printed for you in your bulletins uh, on the back of one of the sheets today because I'm trying out this new app called Haiku Deck. It's a Seattle startup, and they're doing very well. And um, a friend of mine is an investor in the company. And uh, I really like this app so far because they have 
uh, a philosophy. The philosophy is less is more. And so it forces me to use an image, which I have to do. And it, so it forces me to think about my sermon in, in the light of an image. And I have to get creative because I type in gravity and this image doesn't pop up. I have to just kind of really kind of think deep, more deeper about my message. And it only gives me a maximum of five bullet points of text. And they're giant. The font size is giant because it says it, has, it won't let me go below a certain size. And so I can't print the passage up for you on the screen. So you have to either bring your Bibles to church, which some of you still do, Look at the Bibles in your uh, chairs, which we have, or use the text that's printed for you, okay? Or maybe your uh, app or something like that. So, uh, what is the law and who will set me free? What is the law? Let's go through the text here. Verse 14 says that there is a raging conflict between the spirit and the flesh, so there's a divide there. And what he means by spirit and what he means by flesh, I'm not sure. I know he uses those words spirit or the word flesh, but uh, there's a conflict there. Okay, And then in verse 15, uh, he says that there is a conflict between intentions and actions. How many of you here have no conflict between your intentions and your actions. You're just 100% consistent all the time. Your intentions equals your actions. Yeah, no, that's not true. So yes, there is a conflict. And then verse 16 to 20, uh, in classic Pauline fashion, he uses lots and lots of different words to describe this idea of disintegration. A few weeks ago, I talked about the idea of integrity. Remember what the word integrity means? It means to be the same. It means that if you cut a cross-section of me, what's outside is the same as what's in the middle, is what's on the, what's on the underside. So that through and through, I am the same person. So here at home, with my family, with you, with my staff, I'm just the same person. Lucky for me, I've set my bar pretty low, so yes, I'm pretty much the same. Very consistent. The integrity doesn't have to be like all positive, does it? So but Paul says here in 16 to 20 that we are disintegrated, that we're not the same. We have wild mood swings, and we are attracted to very many different things. And then verse 21, he takes it up a notch, and he uses the word evil and good. That uh, right within us, and actually the word that he uses in the Greek means to lie in parallel. They're lying together, meaning they're like friends. They're BFFs. Evil and good within you lie together very happily playmates they're like tag teaming and sometimes they gang up on you at the same time for whom is this not true you know when that when i have an evil thought it's not like it takes years for me to have a good thought or if i have a good thought it doesn't take years for me to have an evil thought within seconds of each other i can have an evil thought and then a really good thought and by the skin of my teeth 
by the skin of my teeth, I happen to act on the good thought. But it's, I have so many moments when I'm thinking about my day and I realize, man, I could have just said that other thing just like that. It would have taken me nothing, just half a second to ruin that relationship forever. Do you realize how close we come to messing up our lives? It really does not take much. And you have relationships like this where you can't believe, you don't know where that came from, you just said something, you didn't mean to, you didn't see it coming, but oh, there were those words, and that person's feelings got destroyed forever, and now there's a rift, and you have little hope that the relationship could ever go back to where it used to be. You have those relationships. You have ruined parts of your life. And evil lying in parallel to each other within the same person. That's us. And then to describe this uh, in one word, Paul in verse 23 says, we are prisoners. And this word prisoner uh, doesn't just mean that you are, uh, you know, in jail at home. It means that you are led away. It's the word hostage or the word, word that denotes captivity. You know, when the Babylonians came and they took the Israelites captive, they didn't just let the Israelites stay there at home in Israel and put them in Israelite jails. They were taken away. They were not home. So there's a sense that you're just uncomfortable and feel like a foreigner. There's a sense that you feel alien within yourself. So that's the word prisoner. And then to wrap it all up in a nice, pretty bow, in verse 24, Paul uses the word wretched. And you guys, you got to understand what this word is, because I'm going to use it to describe me in a second here. But this word wretched is a word that means afflicted, or somebody who's enduring toils and trouble. Meaning like, this person's existence is wretched. They didn't just do a wretched thing and then they can go on to live their non-wretched life. But it's just think about Lord of the Rings and that creature who's obsessed with the ring of power. My precious. Remember that? That voice is fun. We could just do that all day, right? But it's just a miserable, pathetic existence where somebody's fixated on something and they're just all torn up to pieces and you're on the outside of it going, oh my gosh, why are you living like this? That's the word wretched. Wretched man I am, Paul says. So is this an accurate description of you? This describes Paul. He says this, but I... I'm be the first to admit this really describes me. I'm a really good person. I'm also a really evil person at the same time. It's all right there. They're lying in parallel. And I'm drawn to this thing that I want to do. And there's this other thing that I'm pulled towards. There's gravitational forces on me all day long. This describes me. And you decide for yourself if this describes you. There's three ways that I think we can understand what this law is. Now, Paul calls it the law of sin and death. I want to break it down into three uh, categories, theologically, psychologically, and then we'll do it on a street level. 
Okay? First, theologically, it's the law of glory that is at work here. One of my favorite words in the Bible is the word glory. In the Hebrew, it's the word kavod. And if you looked it up in the Hebrew dictionary, it would just say it means to be heavy. So when something has a lot of glory, it means that something has a lot of weight. So we pick up on this in the English language, don't we? We have the word gravitas, right? When, when a leader, when we used to do leadership assessments, we say somebody has a lot of gravitas. They have a weight about them. They have a stage presence. They come up and we just kind of start listening. We're at attention, right? Somebody with a lot of glory. And here's the theology of glory. God has a lot of weight, His weight is infinite. His mass is infinite. Therefore, his gravitational pull is infinite. So scripture says, if God came to us, right? Like if God was right here, God the Father, we'd all just be destroyed. There is no way we can survive proximity to God the Father because of his glory. His glory would just blind us, burn us up or crush us, we'd be destroyed by the weight of his glory. On the flip side, the theology of glory says, God made us with no glory. God made us to be empty vessels so that he can fill us with himself. He was going to deposit his glory in us. And the way he was going to do that is by loving us, not because we're lovable, but because he is loving. So he's going to pour his loving nature and loveliness into us. And so we experience the glory, the significance and the weight of this thing called love. But it's not because we're loving. It's not because we're lovable. It's because God is filling us with his loving nature. And so when I love somebody, I'm simply allowing God to live through me. This is by design how God made us. But if we reject God, then we have no glory and there is a vacuum in us. And we experience this vacuous nature. We do. If we see a beautiful flower, what do you want to do? You have to pick it. You have to take a picture of it. You have to stand next to it and take a picture with it. You want some kind of association with beauty. You look at yourselves in the mirror. You want your hair to cover you nicely. You worry, Why do you do that? Because you know, on the inside, you're empty. The vacuum is trying to suck things into its center. Because na- nature abhors a vacuum, doesn't it? Right? Or you want to make money, or you want to have power, you want to be with a beautiful person, you want to be in a nice space, you want to be surrounded by good and beautiful and power. Why? If you have it, you wouldn't think about it. Why are you so obsessed with food? Because you're hungry, because you're empty. Why does everything look delicious? Because you're starved. And God says, I made you that way. If you reject me, You're going to live life like a vacuum cleaner sucking up anything and everything. And you're going to say, now I'm full. But what are you full of? God didn't make you for anything else except himself. This is the theology 
of glory. We are weightless. We're floating around. We're tossed to and fro. Any celestial body around us will exert a gravitational pull on us because we by ourselves do not have weight. Why is Paul so conflicted? Why is he tossed to and fro? Because he's human. This is what it means to be human. Psychologically, psychologically, okay, you process the theology. That was, that was a lot of stuff. That was clear. You got it. We're moving on. Psychologically, this is what psychologists call self-differentiation. Do you know what self-differentiation means? It means skin, that you have skin. What is the function of my skin? It acts as a first barrier to the outside world. I know where I end and where the world begins by my skin. So that the world does not define me, but I'm able to regulate my own temperature, my own environment, so I'm not infected by the world. I can touch the world, I can be in the world, but not be of the world because I have what's called skin. I am differentiated from everything else. I maintain my integrity as a person by having skin. This is self-differentiation. You have an opinion? That's great. That's your opinion. I also have an opinion. And your opinion doesn't have to be my opinion because we are differentiated from each other. You and I are different. Right? And so I don't have to be tossed this way because somebody wants me to be here. I don't have to go this way because somebody else wants. I can be where I choose to be because I'm self-differentiated. I'm self-defined, not defined by my environment. This is self-differentiation. And Paul is describing in our text a person who is not self-differentiated. This person is a function of his environment. A function of whatever is rising up from within him. Non-differentiated. And then third way of think of, to think about this is to sort of use a, a street language. It's what we would call discipline. What is discipline? Discipline is you feel something, but you're going to do something else anyway. Like, I, ran, I went for a run yesterday. Really, really didn't want to. It was freezing. So there was my feelings, but my discipline allows me to make a choice that might be different than my feelings. So I chose to go for a run. That's discipline. That's maturity. You feel what you feel, but you still do what you got to do. Right? Now, I say maturity because what about a three-year-old kid? If they have this feeling like at Target, they just want to lay in aisle 12 and start kicking and thrashing about, you know what? For the heck, let's throw in screaming at the top of their lungs. If a three-year-old feels like that, what does a three-year-old tend to do? They do that because there isn't this middle thing called choice between feeling and action. That's somebody who is immature. And I'm picking on three-year-olds, but God knows this is true for adults too. We're not, when we're not making choices, we're just immature. We're being undisciplined. We're just a function of our feelings. And Paul describes this, right? I feel like doing this, but I can't. I want to, but I can't. I don't want to, but I do. 
There really isn't choice here, right? Paul is describing an immature, undisciplined person. Now, uh, a story about this. Here's Susie when she was in Guatemala earlier this year. She was on a mission trip with Nicholas Fund for Education. And it was my idea that she go. Because first, I didn't want to go. I'm kind of a diva, you guys. You probably didn't figure that out about me. But I like my stars to be in the 4-5 range. Uh, I'm talking about hotel ratings. But thrives in uh, like this kind of environment. She speaks Spanish. She's been to Guatemala before, and uh, it was a great way for the church to, uh, you know, get my better half and be a better experience for everybody. I encouraged her to go. The problem was it was for too many days. But you know, I'm, I just wanted to do that. I, I Susie, you got to do this. You got, and I made her go, and she loved it. And she had a great time. But right before she went for about three days, and I hope many husbands can relate to this, I became sort of a jerk. And, uh, you know, to to say it slightly, it'd be I was a little bit just kind of critical about different ways that she wasn't, you know, taking care of this, you know, our future properly, the kids and I future. And uh, to, to say it kind of really badly, I was sabotaging this trip. There's something about the progress of a fellow human being that bothers me. I don't want people around me to progress too fast. Do you know why? Because I want to have gravitational influence on their life. I need to be able to exert my influence. But if I feel like they're differentiating too much from me and they're sort of making their own decisions and having their own mind, that's unnerving for me. Not everybody, but the, but the celestial bodies closest to me. Like, I like my moons to orbit around me. And it was my idea, but she was threatening to, like, go hang out at Jupiter or something. And that was scary for me. And I think this is human nature. Sabotage happens unbeknownst to most people. Right? Like, if you're going to lose weight this year, come January 1st, don't tell your best friends or your family. They will sabotage you. Not because they don't like you, but because it's scary for them. Right? Every realtor, broker knows this. If, if they have a customer and they say, oh, you know, I do like this house that you just showed me, but let me bring my sister next time. Don't do that. Because if you do, your sister's going to talk you out of the house. Because that's the nature. So why do we do that? Because we're wretched, Paul says. That's pathetic. It's miserable. We're just at war. Here I am. I really want her to go, but then I hate it that she's going. I want her to have this expanded life, but then I want her to be small and just be dependent on me. I want her to experience like... Just call life in Kodak color. But then I, I kind of like keeping her in this black and white world because that's how I... I'm miserable. I'm wretched. I'm pathetic. And this word here, you have to understand, it's not talking about a man who's in conflict like he's in war, like a firefight with somebody. That, that'd be too, too worthy. This is a man who is just, just sad. You understand? 
No outsider looking at me goes, Peter, you are fighting the good fight. They're just thinking, Peter, what's wrong with you? Stop it. Just let go. It's going to be fine. And I would say, what, what are you talking about? I wasn't in conflict about anything. No, no, just making sure that we have more than fish sticks to eat. That's all. If you remember the story, I fed my kids ice cream, waffles, and fish sticks in the same bowl at the same time. We just talked about it again this week for some reason. Now, the question that Paul ends with is, who will set me free? Who will set me free? Who will set you free? And he gives one answer. So I just have one bullet point. I didn't even need the four other lines that Haiku that gives me. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord. How does this is hap- how does this happen? Well, let's start with psychologically. How does Jesus Christ, our Lord, set us free? Psychologically, Jesus says this. Peter, it's fantastic that you're differentiated. It's great that you're not tossed to and fro by everybody's opinion. Every wind that blows does not carry you away. That's great. But, but here's the thing. You don't care what they think. But you shouldn't even care what you think. See, this is what I love about the gospel as opposed to psychology. You know, I love psychology. You know this. I have three books just on the idea of self-differentiation in my office right now. One of which I'm rereading with the whole staff and the leadership team together. So I clearly have respect for this idea of self-differentiation. I want everybody around me to be self-differentiated. I want to be. But then the gospel comes and says, self-differentiation says, I don't care what you think. But Jesus comes and he says, it's not just enough that you don't care what everybody else thinks. You have to not care even what you think. This is what Jesus calls being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means that our allegiance isn't to other people. It's not even to ourselves, but it's to Jesus alone. How did he put it? He said, you must hate your mother and father. You must hate. The law is irrelevant to you now. What would you gain from obeying the law? Nothing. All it does is feed your ego. It's just one more thing that you're going to have to ill-manage in your life. Jesus paid it all, as the song goes. There is no more debt to pay. Gravity. The law has no attraction. Death has no power. Sins, promises are worthless, and we know that. We are oriented towards Jesus. He is our glory. He is what's important and valuable and significant. He alone is the lover of my soul. His promises are true. He is worthy. His opinion matters. And he's proven everything he's ever said about himself, about God the Father, and about me through the resurrection. Who is worthy in your life? Who has the glory, the weight? Should it be you? Should it be somebody else? Around what planet do you orbit? Should you orbit? 
And the answer that Paul gives is there's no one, not one. There is no one good, not one, save Jesus Christ, our Lord. Allow me to conclude with this story. Um, I want to tell you a story about ministry, but before I get to that, I want you to uh, get a peek into a little bit of the behind the scenes of my brain. Uh, The hardest part about preparing for a sermon is not the exegesis. I mean, it's tricky. Romans is especially tricky. A lot of just wrestling with the text, I would say. Um, But that's not the hardest part. The hardest part are the stories. It's really hard to come up with a good story. You know, there's a lot of angles to it. The easier story to tell is somebody else's story. If I can read a book or a magazine or just meet somebody and they are fantastic and I can just relay that story to you. Like a missionary that I grew up a lot hearing about is a guy named Jim Elliott. You know, I even got to meet Elizabeth Elliott, uh, Jim's wife. And uh, very special people. And uh, growing up, hearing Jim Elliott stories, it was uh, worthless to me. Because it was inspirational. And I walked away from those stories wanting to be like Jim Elliott. It was just another law to keep. See, when you tell stories about Jesus, we don't walk away trying to be like Jesus because he already was everything for us. He was our hero. He did it for us. He's not saying, be just like me. He's saying, I'm going to put my spirit in you, and you're going to do greater things than even I did, but imitate me. You can't. I alone can walk this path. I'm the only Messiah. So we're not trying to be like Jesus. We're trying to be like me with God's spirit in me. I'm not trying to be this perfect person. Jesus was already perfect instead of me. You understand? When I tell a Jim Elliott story, you're going to walk away thinking you have to be like Jim Elliott. And so that's really not helpful. So I choose uh, instead to tell my own stories, my personal stories. And they're often self-deprecating because I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. I'm just trying to tell a true story. That's all. And they happen to be true stories about how I mess up in life, because I do. But here are some reasons why I do that. One is because it's too easy to preach a gospel that's fictional. You have to think about that one a little bit. But if I keep telling other people's stories, the gospel is going to just become more and more distant. And we are supposed to preach a gospel bigger than ourselves, But somehow it's got to be close to home. And if I talk about Jim Elliot, it's going to be out of reach from all of us. So it's going to be inspirational, but not ultimately helpful. The second reason that I like to tell my own stories is that it keeps me in check. I don't claim to be anything. You know, I feel way underqualified for this job long before you've heard any of my stories. That's how I feel about myself. I'm not worthy of the pulpit. I'm not worthy of standing in front of you. I'm not worthy of leading us in worship. That's not what I'm worthy of. 
And telling my stories helps me to remember that, that I stand here behind the pulpit. You know, when I came to this church, I asked that this pulpit be brought back out. This was put away back there because nobody is worthy to stand up here. But we stand here behind the pulpit. And then the third reason I tell my own stories is that it's the best evangelism strategy. That the best way to cut through some of the clutter of Christianese and Christian culture, the things that people stumble on before they even get to stumble on Jesus, is by telling my own stories. There's something about the power of a testimony. Now, why do I do that? Why do I tell my own stories like that? Beyond these reasons, I know that through my weakness and through my broken life stories, Jesus will shine through because you're going to see clearly that it's not me that's shining, but it's God's glory in me, my significance, my worth, my justification is Christ in me. You all know me. You know my stories. I haven't told I'm running out of stories, actually. But Jesus is shining through, through my story. So I, I end with another one. And it's really important that you know this. Um, for 17 years now, I've been in ministry. Um, I've been part of planting six different churches. I directed church planting for four years. And then now I find myself here. But the last two years of ministry are the years that I would consider my happy years. Prior to these last two years, I was kind of a miserable soul. And I didn't know how to do ministry. I think a lot of it was my ego. And a lot of it was my own demons that I was trying to exercise. And I think I was drawn to ministry in the first place because of my own desperation and sense uh, of spiritual lostness. I talked for years about healing because I was so sick and hurting. And I ran hard. I ran way too fast. And I burnt out. And I wanted to leave the ministry. This was in the year 2006. I wanted to leave the ministry. And I, my fantasy was to uh, go to a warm island somewhere and become the bartender. I wanted to mix drinks for people who were in vacation mode and just spending money. I wanted the large, generous tips. I wanted the laid-back life. And I would regularly talk to Susie about this fantasy life that we were going to live one day. And she would say, Peter, I give you a month as a bartender. And you're going to see all the things that need to be changed about the resort. And you're going to end up becoming the manager and you're going to be miserable again. What was the difference now? Because I can tell you right now that I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. I don't know. I don't remember how happy I was when I was five. But this is, in adult memory, this is the happiest I've ever been. In fact, Susie and I talk about this all the time. All the time. The other day, Susie told me she was physically feeling like she was going to burst from thankfulness. Like burst, like explode physically because she's so thankful. What's the difference? I think the difference is that Jesus is my center. I really do. I don't have an ambition to do anything. I don't have to plant my seventh church. I am at a place where I care much more about God's opinion than yours. 
We went through a lot of change. I receive a lot of feedback, even now. Do you know that I have 21 people on a sermon feedback team right now? Tonight, they will get a sermon feedback form. They will fill it out, and they will criticize and tear down this sermon to its constituent parts. And it's going to be painful for me to read every single one. Absolutely. The leadership team reviews me every quarter. Formal review. I just got reviewed a few weeks ago. And then they do a 360 of me. You all do a 360 of me every two years. I had one six months into this church. I got reviewed by Best Christian Workplaces Institute. Thank you, Al Lopez. (laughs) That's a lot of feedback. But here's why I don't care. Because ultimately, it's just your opinion. It's not that I don't care about you. It said, I don't care about me either. Because God has an opinion about me. And if he fills me, he's my significance. He's my glory. I don't have this gravitational pull towards your compliment of me. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it sometimes makes my day. But you don't get to make, make my week. No. I'm not sure how I got here. I'm not sure what work God did, but all I can tell you is I love living this way with no human being as my master and Lord, where opinions are put in their proper tiny little place, where occasionally I see them, but they go through their phase and sometimes there is none. I love that. I love that I myself get to orbit around something. Bigger and better than myself. I'm not sure how this all plays out in your brain. But I believe this is the way we are meant to live. Empty vessels filled by God. And I want to challenge you. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian. You consider your options. How will you live? Who is worthy of your orientation? You read the passage. That is going to be your perpetual existence if you don't have Jesus as the celestial body in your life around whom you orbit. You make your choice. But Jesus, our Lord, is the only answer that Paul gives to us. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I do ask this question again. Who will set us free? Who will set us free? And I think the only answer really is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has paid the debt that we should have paid. He has broken the powers all around us and set us free. And even the shaking that I feel now That's evidence of the presence of Christ in my life. So I pray, God, in this season of Advent where we celebrate and remember that you have drawn near to us. 
God, we would experience that nearness, that imminence of God among us. Emmanuel, God with us. And we would see you and function with you as the Lord of our lives. Give us a taste this week of what it would be like if you were truly at the center and we weren't tossed back and forth. From our allegiances to others, from the opinions of others, from our past, from our anxieties about the future. Give us a taste this week, I pray. Be our Lord in Jesus' name.